0: Good morning, everybody. If you're attending the conference uh, or the lecture, I'd love to have you sit down and sit down close to the front so we can be up close and personable and have a really good time. For your last day of the conference, you guys had a good time so far? Okay, fantastic. i like to get to know, my name is Kathy, by the way, Kathy Holzer. I'm a PA with a master's in public health, and I've been living overseas for several decades and mostly in war torn zones. I don't know if any of you attended my complex humanitarian emergency lecture. Nope, yeah. he did. Okay. Anyway, um, that's where a majority of my time was. Uh, so, But where I lived in Africa, I dealt with all of these diseases. So that's what we'll be talking about today, the top five neglected tropical diseases. But I'd love to know who I'm talking to. So how many of you have lived or worked overseas already? Can you raise your hand? Oh, two. Where have you been? Where? Haiti. Haiti, okay. So and the rest of you are considering service, either long-term or short-term? How many of you are considering long-term service? Wonderful. What part of the world? Uh, Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia? Same. Same, okay, Great. And short-term service. <clears throat> Anybody interested in like the African region? Okay. So all of these, a lot of these diseases, as you'll see through the through the presentation, where they're at, and if you happen to work in any of those areas, most often you'll come into contact with them. I came in contact, like I said, with all five of these in South Sudan, where I spent over a decade. So, let us get on with this. I have nothing to disclose. We're going to describe the burden and epidemiology of all these. We're going to understand what a Mass Drug Administration Program is. That's what MDA stands for. It's Preventive Chemotherapy Treatment for These Diseases. And there's weaknesses, there's pros, there's cons. We'll try to go through all of that so you understand it. And hopefully, some of you will get involved in it in areas where you'll be working. We're going to talk about how we might control and manage these disease. We're going to talk very briefly about how COVID-19 pandemic affected these programs. I think COVID-19 is slowly but surely what, you know, working its way out as being a major uh, pandemic anymore. And then we'll talk about the practical ways to scale up these programs. So these diseases affect what we call the bottom billion. More than a billion people in these already impoverished nations are infected, affected by most of these diseases. It's mostly in developing countries, so already they have weak health systems to care for all of it. And some of the most Poor people are affected the worst, and they're marginalized. They already don't have a voice to somebody to help them. Hopefully you'll be the one that will be the voice. But you can see where where their burden is, is Africa holds the brunt of this, as well as Asia and parts of South America. But you'll see more and more as I go on through all the slides that Africa and Southeast Asia really happen to be holding the greatest burden. So each of these diseases is a poverty-promoting condition. It already is, like I said, in rural areas of low-income countries, and they have a profound impact on childhood development. So you can imagine a lot of these diseases lead to anemia. So what, that's going to affect the child's brain. It's going to check they're going to be tired. They're going to have harder time studying. But it also affects the adults as well, and you'll see some of them are quite disfiguring, which causes them where they can't even go to work. So as a result, it ends up as a catch-22, continually promoting poverty if they continue in the region. Lymphatic filariasis, we'll talk about, like I said, some of these are very, very disfiguring and stigmatizing. And you can imagine the mental health effect it has on those who are afflicted with these diseases. And then on top of the mental health of the disease, add pandemics of the pandemic on top of that. So it's got like a double burden of effects on their mental health. Over uh, one and a half billion of the world's poorest people are affected by one, if not all, of these diseases. Unfortunately, this includes more than a billion children. So if a billion children are at risk for these diseases, you can see, again, how it just leads to more and more poverty. It keeps them where these countries have a very difficult time rising above the poverty level. What we're going to discuss today is lymphatic filariasis, onchocerciasis, schistosomiasis, trachoma, and all of the soil-transmitted helmets that you can uh, Give MDA for preventive chemotherapy for prevention or treatment of them. I want to know how many of you have ever seen any of these diseases in your practice. Okay, so our, our friend in Haiti, and then okay, which one? schistosomiasis. And and you, my friend. I'm sorry. I saw tri- I saw and okay. Yeah, well, sometimes the worms are hard to know which is which unless you have a slide that you can do it with. But any of you ever do any MDA programs, mass drug administration programs? No. Okay. Were any of you in the countries that you were aware where the country itself was doing a mass drug administration program? So Okay, one. So you can see it's still a very slow uptake for this. Now let's move on to lymphatic filariasis. It's the leading cause of permanent disability worldwide, and you can see why. When these people get infected by these parasites, which are injected into them through the bite of a mosquito, then those worms begin to grow, live in the lymph system, causing blocking the lymph system, causing severe lymphedema. And they can cause elephantiasis. As you can see, this man unfortunately has an hydrocele. So we had a man in South Sudan who had a scrotum this large, and I'm not kidding, who had to be flown out to Kenya in order to have the operation to get that taken care of. And I commonly saw men in South Sudan whose scrotums were this large. It's interesting to note that some people are infected with this and are asymptomatic. But unfortunately, because they are infected with it, you can imagine a mosquito bites them, and that same mosquito goes and bites somebody else, and what happens? That person then becomes infected and may become symptomatic. This is where the majority of the cases are. 863 million people in 50 countries require treatment and chemotherapy for this. And India holds the greatest burden. And it is, I think, close to, over 10 million people in India alone have this disease. And, and it is heavily burdened in Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa just seems to have a brunt of probably five of these in most countries going on at one time. This is the disease. How many of you ever heard of onchocerciasis before? Okay, it's otherwise known as river blindness. And that is because... There's a simileum fly that carries the parasite, the Onchocerca volvulus, which if they are doing any kind, if they live near a fast-flowing, highly oxygenated river, and they do fishing, they're bitten by this little black fly over and over, and then they become infected with this parasite, and slowly but surely it begins affecting most of their body, gets into their eye, through, through the tracks there, through the, uh, the, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting, the vitreous fluid, and causes it to become so, so plugged up with those little worms that they go blind, and then they unfortunately end up with glaucoma, a lot of them. Terribly painful disease without treatment, which, hey, In South South Sudan, where I worked, there was no treatment for glaucoma. So most of these men that I was working with that had this disease and were permanently blind but had glaucoma would drink themselves drunk from morning till night to deal with the pain. Some people, the pain was so bad they'd pull their eyes out. And then the infection can also cause a very bad nodular, itchy, very itchy skin rash, which the... Rash can itch so bad, become so intense, that some people have committed suicide. It's really, really bad. And one of the pathognomonic features of this disease is that if you see anybody and ask to see their shin, you'll see something called a leopard skin rash, where it, it's a, uh, especially if they have African skin, it really shows up well because it's white spots all running up and down their, their shin area. And that's because the intense itching has lost to the skin coloring, the melanoma, um, the the melanin in the skin. I'm sorry, I'm so tired. This is my fourth lecture in the the last two days, so forgive me. But anyway, it it is a horrible disease. The reason I got involved in mass drug administration programs was because of this disease. We had lived in a very rural, rural area in South Sudan. We rode our bikes seven hours to this village to do a medical outreach for these people. We met this. They brought this little nine-year-old boy to us. One week before he we got there, he had gone blind because of this disease. Can you imagine what his future is? He has no future. Nothing. He, he won't. He can't see. I mean, the chances of him getting married or doing any kind of work for his family is nil. Next to none. He fished, and that's what he did. That's how he ended up getting this disease. So. I became involved in mass drug administration programs from that point on. I'm committed to seeing that everybody who needs this care gets it because I don't want to see a 9-year-old boy going blind again. This is where it's at. The majority of the cases are, again, in sub-Saharan Africa. few cases, I believe, in Yemen and Venezuela. But it is the fourth leading cause of preventable blindness in the world. So it really needs to be looked at, and case finding is important. Schistosomiasis is another thing that we saw a lot of in South Sudan. It's an acute and chronic parasitic disease caused by trematode worms that happen by the genus is called schistosoma. That's how it gets the disease name, schistosomiasis. So the larval form of the parasite is released by freshwater snails. So these snails penetrate the skin of these oftentimes young children who are playing in the water and stuff like that, and then it goes into their body. It causes two different forms of schistosomiasis. So you have that which affects the intestinal tract, so it ends up with bloody diarrhea or just bloody stools, and then that which affects the urogenital tract. You can see these kids here holding up their urine samples. That's bloody urine. So it's not a juice that they're about ready to drink. That's their urine. So there's the problem with schistosomiasis, again, it leads to anemia in children, which, again, leads to that poverty-promoting disease. But also, it's a a factor in bladder cancer. And so if untreated, it can lead to bladder cancer and other diseases that are highly stigmatizing. So... Case finding is really, really important. MDA programs to prevent it in the first place is also very, very important. It's in, again, mostly Africa. It affects 229 million people. It is the deadliest neglected tropical disease. It kills more than 200,000 people every year in Africa alone. There are 20 million people who are suffering from schistosomiasis in the world right now. And like I said, it can lead to anemia and growth retardation. We have a lot, we used to have, I think we're becoming smarter about this now. We used to think, oh, it's only going to affect kids five and up. They're the only ones that are to go play in the water. What's in this picture here? Do you see who's in the water? That's not five years or above. Well, mom who's washing the clothes, who brought her youngest, who's probably just a couple months old, and where is he sitting in that same water? In fact, some studies show now that 100% of children below the age of 5 are infected in some areas. So we don't just treat 5 and up anymore. 2 and up now, mass drug administration, because um, these kids are infected and... um, As you you can't see, but through her legs there, there's also another little girl who's helping mom washing the clothes. You can just see her leg in between her mom. But so these women are greatly affected as well. How many of you ever heard of female genital schistosomiasis? Put this on your radar if you're going to be working overseas in areas where schistosomiasis is endemic. Because this is a horrible, horrible disease. It's a serious chronic gynecological condition. It affects up to 56 million African women and girls. They estimate that between 20 and 150 million of them are at risk in these areas. It is one of the most overlooked conditions, especially in national health programs, and clinicians don't know about it. So we don't even have it in our differential diagnosis. So, if you have a woman with a lot of vague complaints, you know, maybe she's complaining of pain with intercourse because it does cause it. If maybe she's complaining of bleeding, but she's not on her period because it causes vaginal bleeding, it causes vulvular nodules. What do we think about with that? We think of STDs, right? So, oftentimes we're treating them for STDs, PID, or just hypochondriac. You know, we think they're a woman. They're just having a hypochondriac. They don't want to have sex with their husband, so they're complaining of, you know, painful sex. with. And no, if you need to check to see, you need to have this in your differential diagnosis. Download this atlas from WHO. It shows you really good colposcopic pictures to see what the cervix looks like, to see what the vaginal wall looks like. So when you're in there with your speculum you can see there's many many photos so it will really help you in your diagnosis of besides also checking for uh, bloody urine and so on but it's a very easy treatment praziquantel so all these women should be checked the problem is that female genital schistosomiasis is one of the leading causes for spreading HIV, they're much more prone to HIV, and it is one of the most common gynecological conditions of women who live in poverty. It also can lead them more at risk for human papillomavirus, and what does human papillomavirus lead to? Cervical cancer, and cervical cancer is getting to be a bigger problem in Africa. And I imagine that FGS might be one of the main reasons for it. So we, it's, it just adds to the AIDS epidemic in Africa. Keep it in your differential diagnosis. Trachoma, I saw all the time in Sudan. In fact, when we were there, we always knew those who had it, just besides the infectious that we would see, that was caused by chlamydia trachoma, trachomatis you would see these women wearing around their neck tweezers. And why do you think they had tweezers? Not to take care of their eyebrows, but to pluck out their eyelashes, because this disease causes, affects the tarsal plate of the eye, causing cobblestoning, which causes a lot of scarring and then, the eyelashes begin growing up and inward because the eyelid itself becomes so scarred and heavily cobblestone. So what's going to happen if the eyelashes are, gro- are growing inside now, if the tarsal plates turned inward? What happens every time they open and close their eyes and blink? They're scarred by their own eyelashes. And it's quite painful. You know how it feels when you have a grit in your own eye? Can you imagine having a bunch of eyelashes, constantly scratching your cornea, and it leads to scarring of the cornea and blindness. It is the world's leading infectious cause of infectious, infectious blindness. And it's due to poor hygiene, overcrowding high households, and then, of course, lack of water and sanitation and hygiene. I lived in South Sudan where we had no electricity, no running water. We used an outdoor pit toilet. However, the majority of households that were around us used the bush as their toilet so you can imagine why this continually goes on and on and on the prevalence as you can see hits mostly the global south again africa has a lot of it but asia and parts of the americas as well it's endemic more than in more than 50 countries Children and women, obviously, are the most affected. You've seen those horrible pictures of kids, you know, with the flies in their eyes. Well, moms are trying to take care of them all the time. I've seen them just use their fingers to clean their kids' eyes. She doesn't wash her hands afterwards. What happens then? She gets it as well. Women, in fact, are four times more likely to get this disease than men. And right now, 1.9 million, nearly 2 million people are blind in the world because of this disease or visually impaired and over 3 million need the surgery in order to correct it. So the surgery is quite simple. You can do it in any bush setting. They just cut through here and um, pull up the tarsal lid plate so that the eyelashes are now back up again. It's a very simple surgery. The organization I work with did a lot of these. Just good news though, of, as of September 2022, Malawi became the first country in South Africa to be complete, declared free by WHO of trachoma. It can happen if countries are committed to it, and people like us are also committed to it. It's time for lunch, pasta, right? We just ate a bunch of spaghetti last night, or—but no, we know what this is. What is this? This is ascariasis, right? So they can grow this long. They're quite long. And this is the most common uh, of all the infectious neglected tropical diseases worldwide. I mean, it just affects so many people. Again, poor hygiene, lack of access to water and uh, sanitation, and shoes. Why shoes? Why do you think shoes are important to help prevent this? Anybody give an educated guess? Yes, if the worms are in the soil, it goes up to the feet of the children or adults, exactly. So more than 1.5 billion people, or 24% of the world's population, have worms. Check yourself if you're going to work in these countries. But wear your shoes, for sure. But it's most prevalent in rural communities where it's hot and humid, the soil's wet, and the worms can live really well it's globally their estimate that there are 820 million people who are infected with roundworms, 460 million with whipworms, and 440 million with hookworms. That's a lot of people. You can see, again, the Global South is heavily infected with this. So what are we going to do about this? Well, there are medications that can help prevent and also treat, and that's the whole backbone of a mass drug administration program. I'm not going to go through this whole thing. This is here for your reference. This is available on the WHO website. On their, uh, they have a good teaching called Preventive Chemotherapy and Capacity Building for Program Managers in sub uh, in, in Africa. So this course you can take. You can learn yourself. But basically, I like this because it goes through what are the, what's the infectious agent, the mode of transmission, the symptoms, the high-risk groups, and then the control methods, and then the medications that you use for it. So basically, I'm going to show you that these medications that we use are albendazole and mabendazole, ivermectin. We've heard about ivermectin a lot lately, right? <clears throat> it might not be so good for COVID, but it is really good for a lot of these diseases DEC, which you probably haven't heard of. We don't use much in the States, diethylcarbamazepine. And then there is praziquantel and azithromycin. These are all the dosings here. Again, this, I'm not going to go through that. Those are easily available. Follow the, your country's guidelines for sure, because if you're working in any country, you need to see what their neglected tropical disease program has set up and what the Ministry of Health has set up. There is a lot of talk. In fact, I just uh, did this lecture a couple of years ago in um, Thailand for the ICMDE conference. And one guy came up to me right afterwards and said, "Albendazole, and albenazol will never work to take care of worms. Well, I happen to probably agree with him that uh, that is... We're just really falling behind, especially when it comes to trichoriasis. It's really, really hard to treat that. It's it's so resistant to a lot of these drugs already, and they just keep getting it. But this was a very interesting observational study that I found. It was done in Cameroon. And it was conducted, they conducted cross-sectional surveys in two health districts in Cameroon. One district had already been giving ivermectin for many years for their lymphatic filariasis program. And one district only did albendazole or mabendazole for their worm program. Well, they decided to hit both these districts at the same time with albendazole and mabendazole. And this is interesting what they found. So there's two districts, Akonolinga And Liabasi Health District. So there were 610 in that first district, 584 participants in the second one, aged 2 to 10 years. Both of them were affected with ascariasis and trichariasis. After they checked, after they did the MDA program and they checked, there was a higher prevalence in the Akonolinga Health District. 43.3% of them still had high levels of worms. Whereas in the Yabasi district where they were giving ivermectin, look at that, 2.5% infectious rate. That's a p-value of 0.0001. That's impressive. That's highly statistically significant. So now they're starting to think maybe adding a simple drug like ivermectin, which is very safe, could help to uh, really start to eradicate these worm pro- the worm problem we have much better. So you might want to consider doing, if you're working long-term in a country, trying that and do your own studies and see if you come up with the same results. I, was, I thought this was an amazing study. Even though it's just an observational study, I thought it was great. And now beside that, they're finding that these drugs that we're giving go beyond the intended, the intended target. So albendazole and you can see, actually also helped to eradicate esophagostomatiasis esophago as well as strongloidiasis. And in fact, I believe that they said that um, some of these countries, they finally did away with them because of these mass drug administration programs. Ivermectin not only hit lymphatic filariasis and onchocerciasis, but also, I already know this from my work in Sudan, scabies. It's a great scabies treatment. I think we should be using it in the States. Besides, We always give these kids this horrible stuff to put on their body when they can safely take scabies and be done with it. I believe we use it in our prisons. Um, it's, a, it's a great treatment for it. Strong loiasis, some of these things you never heard of, but they're also really promising research for malaria. Very, very promising. So if any of you are working in a malaria endemic region, I highly recommend that you look up some of these studies, how they're using ivermectin in also helping to eradicate malaria. Proziquantol, again, hitting two more different problems, azithromycin, yaws, and helps in child mortality. Where I worked in Sudan, we had a a malnutrition program, and we routinely, when they were entered into our program, were given azithromycin, and we found that they did far better. Far, far better. So how do you do this? How do you set it up? Like I said, I didn't know where to go. I'd never done one, but I learned the best ways to do it. You have to do it in Partnership with your community, you have to work very closely with your community led leaders, another and schools you can give them in schools, work with your church, get everybody involved. Another reason why if you work long term in a country, please learn the language, get out from behind your clinic or your hospital walls, get to know your community so that you already are building trusting relationships with them so they will have a, you'll have a better uptake with this if it's new in your area. So it's a campaign style. They go out there, they arrange it a couple weeks beforehand, and then they finally come in for the day of doing this distribution. They go out there with the megaphone or uh, we, that's all we could use because we didn't have electricity. So. Or you start yelling and getting everybody or go house to house get people out there. And their campaigns run twice a year, but because of COVID now, they're saying some of these need to be definitely need to be done twice a year, not just once a year like they used to do, because we need to make up for the losses of the last two years of everything shut down. It's pretty inexpensive. So they say that it costs about 50 cents per person, and that's because the drugs, most of them are donated by the, by the companies that make them. I'm very impressed with a lot of them. Some of them still charge a little bit, which I'm saddened by, but the majority of them donate them. So you can target a large population at one time. You can treat as well as prevent when you're doing these. You can use simple ways to do it. If you can't measure a child, we always used a dosing stick, and you can get all the information you need on how to make this stick. They do it by by. Obviously, the height of the child, and it will show you what dose to give. So you don't have to bring a scale with you. Um, especially, we worked in Sudan. You can see that it's dirt. I mean, you can't get a scale very well um, on a flat. I mean, it's not a flat ground. So using these dosing sticks, easy to carry, easy to use, easy to distribute. Most of the time, however, make sure you're planning. Not around the planting seasons, because you won't find anybody. Because a lot of these people live in areas where it's subsistence farmers. And so they're during harvest and reaping season, I mean harvest and sowing seasons, do not do it. You've got to find out. Another reason to know your community. And then, of course, floods might affect it, disasters, war, all that stuff. So you might throw everything out of all your planning, but you'll pick up again because you've already planned it. And then you can, they're finding that if you combine some of these drugs, I think some places combine four of these medications together very, very safely. So you can really cut out a lot of time and a lot of fatigue because some of these diseases you, you treat 10 to 15 years. Onchocerciasis, 10 to 15 years. You have to run a mass drug administration program. It's a lot of work. So there are some weaknesses. I'm not going to say it's perfect. Okay, so those who are affected by it are the bottom billion. They don't have a voice. They don't have any wealth. They have nobody to speak for them. I'm hoping you'll be the one that will speak for them. Many of them live in areas where there's conflict. South Sudan... I can't tell you the number of times that we had conflict and we were evacuated, conflict and we were evacuated over and over and over again. It just became a part of life, and I think that's not going to change in the future. Everybody's hoping for peace, but I think the Bible clearly shows us what's going to happen. Wars, rumor wars, plagues, pestilences. Hey, this is all job security for you for those who are in the health field. Unfortunately, it's also very bad for the people we love and care for. So getting this type of program out there for them, as well as bringing the gospel when you're doing these programs. We always, always shared the gospel in areas that we could when we were there giving these drugs. Because many of these people were unreached with the gospel I tell you, in my first four years of working in Sudan, we saw 11 churches started. Eleven. The next bit, we saw multitudes more. That's because we were always out in the community. I didn't stay behind the walls of the clinic or the, wherever I was working. I got out there. So, anyway, these people, their governments are not really cheering for them. It's kind of like our own nation. You know, we often neglect the poor. But... Uh, these are chronic diseases as well. You get tired having to treat the same thing over and over again. And unfortunately, the pathogens and the parasites can be evolving as well. And that is a big concern, especially with using azithromycin, antibiotic resistance. So you've got to cons- check for that and see how they're doing um, with that because at some point you might have to change to another drug. Community health vo- volunteers are going to be the cornerstone for you to deliver these meds. You can't get out there and do this yourself. I had a team, a very big team, and I worked with people who were from the community. I didn't bring in outsiders. And why is that important? They need to trust the people they're taking this medication from, especially if they have no idea what they're taking. Because, I mean, we've heard rumors like, oh, don't take that medicine. You'll never be able to have a baby again. Or don't take that medicine, like we heard in COVID, right? If you get vaccinated, you're going to die. We had all of I live in Jordan now, and all, a lot of my, my patients wouldn't take the COVID vaccine because they said, it kills Muslims. <laughs> so then they have the same kind of conspiracy theories around these two as well. So you work with community health volunteers that are going to really be um, out there cheering and helping them. I love this picture because this is a picture of Aisha. She was a refugee from Blue Nile State that lived in our area in Maban, in Doro. And, uh, she had onchocerciasis as a child. She got the treatment. She never became blind. So believe me, she was a good voice for going out there to get people to take the medication so that they wouldn't go blind like she didn't go blind. So find people who are going to be your champions. And the other challenges are among the community. Like I said already, some of them just didn't trust it, didn't want to take it. Some of these communities are very far away. Like I said, sometimes we would walk hours or ride our bikes in 120 degrees, hours to get to them. But I was committed to this. I didn't want to see kids go blind. I didn't want to see people disfigured. And it's Or can you imagine doing this in an urban setting, say like in Delhi or something like that, to try to treat lymphatic filariasis? Could you imagine, how do you even go in a city where there's millions of people and try to run such a program? Well, that's where you work very closely with the government and and work there. Then these community drug distributors, oftentimes many programs want to use them for free. I think that's wrong. I think we need to find a way to work them into our primary health care system so that they at least get a stipend every time that they're working, that they get food. We always provided them with rain boots, an umbrella, a T-shirt so they could be identified, uh, a lanyard and oh, I don't even have mine on, sorry, and a name tag, and then uh, and then these flip charts so that they could teach through it because many of them were illiterate. But these were picture flip charts that we taught them to use, and it worked very very well. So just find some good photos and teach them how to do it. They attended like a week to 10-day course with us. They got fed every day that they were at the course. And we also gave them a a daily stipend. And we also outfitted with them other gifts all the time. We just stayed in touch with them. We had regular meetings. They need to know that they're important. So somehow we got to find a way to give them incentives so they don't get tired and tell you they do it, but really they're not going out there doing it because they're tired and they feel unappreciated. So then there's fear of adverse reactions with these medications, and I'll tell you right now ivermectin, ivermectin can cause really severe reaction called mazotes. Those who are infected have a high um, degree of the worms in their body. They take the ivermectin, they will itch so bad that it will drive them crazy because those little worms are going like crazy. They're like, ah, what are you doing to me? Give those, especially who you know, have already active case of onchrocystiasis three days of antihistamine with it so they can take care of it. Those that you don't know have it. Tell them, hey, come back right away to the clinic and we'll give you the medicine that you need. Sometimes we had to give them a steroid injection because it was so bad. But make sure you give them the education that they know, hey, if you have any adverse reaction, come back and see us and we'll take care of you. And then it's just hard to work in these situations because a lot of times the low health literacy rate they don't understand why it's important so that's why we would go in beforehand and do a lot of education so that they would understand good thing is there is a lot of successes with these programs this is the latest data that i got from the who so from since 2012 66 preventive coverage that's up from 42 percent in 2012 600 million fewer people require these interventions And since uh, since 2010, more than a million trachoma eye surgeries were done since 2014. That's very impressive. And then 43 countries have eliminated at least one of these. And the greatest news is, uh, just got this, 22nd of August of this year, WHO just officially declared Togo free from Four of these neglected tropical diseases, but they had really high government involvement and partner involvement like you. So it can be done. I just want to say that it seems like a daunting task, but it can be done. So the pandemic did affect these programs, as you can imagine. We were locked down. They were locked down. So and these programs, I'm not going to go through all this quite wordy, but I gave it to you here for your reference. For the, the mass drug administration programs obviously were most affected. Can you understand why all these people gathering together in close proximity? So it just they said, nope, no more of those. Let's not do this. There was a lot of programs were shut down. So the pandemic really caused us to lose two years of already gains that we're making. So that's why now some of these diseases we have to think about giving biannually. They're, the concerns about this is because now there's going to be a heavier burden of these diseases Again, we're not going to end our tar- we're not going to reach our target. They believe well, it was 2020 to end neglected tropical diseases. that came and went. Now they are saying by 2030, I don't think it's going to happen. So but if, if those of you who are going long term and you're committed to this, you can help maybe make it happen by let's say 2040. let's hope. This slide just shows why we should consider maybe giving the drugs we were given before for certain diseases twice a year. So when you look at um, the, there shows here, cystosomiasis and lymphatic filariasis. Lymphatic filariasis on the bottom, that's really got a low prevalence and a long life span. Missing one or two doses, as you can see by this slide here, isn't going to affect these people too much. However, because schistosomiasis has a higher prevalence and a very short lifespan, missing a dose of mass drug administration, you can see the losses from the red line compared to the black dotted line there. We could have hit the black dotted line if they didn't miss their dose, where the transmission would have been down further. But um, now we've, we've lost some of it, so now we might want to consider giving it twice a year instead. Until we catch up, and these slides I'm not sure are really going to be relevant for a lot of us because I think the pandemic's starting to dwindle. I really hope and pray, but if you do work in areas where they're still heavily. Um, under the pandemic context, I know that China is still locked down, I believe, right in some places. My goodness. So if you're going to work in a place like China, here is a really good handbook for you. Practical Approaches to Implementing WHO Guidelines for neglected Tropical Disease Programs in the context of the pandemic. So this is filled with really good information. Download it for free. It's right there. <clears throat> it's under the NTD Neglected Tropical Disease Toolbox. Go ahead and take a look at it. And there's also a free training manual, which is in PowerPoint form. So if you want to train anybody in this and working in the context of doing these programs of a context of a pandemic, these are where you can go ahead and it's a generic model. You can make it to write all over it to make it fit your needs in the area that you're working 88 pages. I don't think a lot of our people are going to sit through 88 pages of a PowerPoint, but take the, p- the pieces that you want out of it and work with it. But WHO more and more is saying that we need to begin interrogating all of these things. These programs need to work hand-in-hand with other programs that are all, already up and running. Wash services, immunization programs. Can you imagine how easy it would be to, to give These medications, at the same time we're out doing immunization programs, we really should be working with other NGOs in the area who do immunization. We need to find out when their immunization days are and go out with them. You're killing two birds with one stone, it's a great way to do it. Vector control programs have to do that. Nigeria was one of the key players in helping to eradicate Anko because they had really good helicopter programs that went on these rivers and sprayed them. But South Sudan is one of the poorest countries in the world. They don't have helicopters. It ain't going to happen. Primary health care, I believe that if we can set up more primary health care outposts in far, hard-to-reach regions, train some community health workers to diagnose and, and, and detect these so that they can be registered, so that we can hit them with the next mass drug administration programs and begin treating them right there. Our community health workers in Sudan were all trained in how to treat these diseases if active cases came in. So with malaria programs, because we've already seen ivermectin might have a good possibility to help uh, eradicate malaria. But if they're distributing bed nets, why not distribute these mass drug administration drugs, right, these preventive chemotherapy drugs, and then with other neglected tropical diseases. But the key to success is going to be the community. Involving the community, funding's needed, obviously. But if we really be the voice, I think we can get the funding. And then the the government needs to be involved. The only way that these things can happen if we are involved with our community that we came to serve. I'm a little bit tired of so many of us going there to be the doctor, the nurse, the PA, and not being the community voice. Not being Jesus Christ to these people who are so, so poor, suffering from so much. I love this verse in Galatians 2.10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. These are hard programs. We need to be eager. For too long, even here in America, we have treated diseases and not focused on preventing or ending the disease. We must remember we are caring for people, not a program, not a project, not a disease. People are behind that. When I see these people who are blind, who are now being led by a young child who has a very little chance of going to school now because he either has to take a dad or tear a dad or grandpa, that's not right. It's just not right. These can be eliminated by due diligence on our part. We need to diagnose, we need to treat and we need to target whole communities with these programs. They're debilitating, they're disfiguring, and they cause a toll on their mental health. We're there well-placed by the Lord to address their mental health issues and their health issues. If they've already suffered from this disease, can you imagine what counsel can do for them, care can do for them? Our whole clinic... We made the chaplains the center of the clinic. These health programs were all spokes from the wheel of the chaplaincy program. When I first took over the program, the chaplains were just sitting in the back room doing nothing. I said, this is going to stop. We are going to make them the center. They were in the community. They knew the people. They could detect. They were trained as well in in this. They could detect the diseases and bring them to the clinic. They gave them the spiritual care that they needed. As a result of that... We saw so many come to Christ and so many healed in their heart as well as their body. So let us show the love of God to the bottom billion. I think we just have a few minutes here. Any questions, thoughts, comments? Did I overwhelm you? How frequently is the program administered to the population? So um, we give a... Once or twice a year, depending upon the disease. But now in the context of pandemic, having closed things down for two years, some of them now have to be given twice a year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In terms of doing PAPs or cervical cancer screening and also screening in terms of bladder cancer, what are you guys doing and how are you approaching it? So for the PAP smears, a lot of these places just don't have it. And they wouldn't even have the treatment. Unfortunately, we do have speculum examinations that we can do, but for bladder cancer, I highly recommend learning pocus. Pocus. I was I was working in a prison. I was doing my preceptorship in a prison, and I was this guy had murmurs everywhere, and I noticed his femoral artery had bad murmur, so we decided to do an ultrasound on him. And as we were going from one femoral artery across the belly to the next femoral artery, we picked up bladder cancer. So, go ahead and do that. And what we would have to do for a lot of our cancer patients, because we did pick up cancer, just you should be a great diagnostician when you go to a field like this where there's no access to probably a lot of this stuff where I lived. You really need to get your diagnostic skills up to par. We picked up so many cancers and severe heart diseases just from being good at murmurs and other things and just diagnosing brain cancer and stuff just because the the whole symptoms that she was showing, we were able to send them up to Khartoum for the care that they needed. So just be a good diagnostician and always think about bladder cancer in your patients with long-standing schistosomiasis, definitely. And then for the female genitals, just Always do a always do a, a cervical exam, a vaginal exam, see how, how far it's gone along. And check for STDs and check for HIV. Do you always use national and local medications? No. From abroad, no. you is a Yeah, so that's an excellent question. He wanted to know if we use. Uh, if we bring medicines in from abroad. No. In a sense, we did, everybody had to get their meds from Kenya. Sudan is one of the most poorest nations with very little access to medicine. So we brought our meds from Kenya, but we followed the MSF guidelines, the Ministry of Health guidelines of the essential drug package. So our medications, these the neglected tropical disease medicines came from the country because they had an NTD program, so all of my ivermectin I got for free. The praziquantel we had to bring in because they weren't doing MDA for that kind of stuff, and some of the, the zithromycin I had to bring in from Kenya. But yeah, the ivermectin definitely because onco was so endemic in, in South Sudan, we got it from the country for free, and they flew it up to us. I'd get fifty thousand tablets at a time. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? Comments? Got ten minutes, don't be shy. Perfect. Yes. So more towards a dosing. Have you ever have you had issues with, with not getting the medication within the country if you bring it from another country,
1: the dosing aspect will no. I don't want to Like if it's a
0: different medication than what the, the government's giving? the strength yes well we, we haven't seen that because Merck is the one who takes care of the ivermectin so we haven't had that problem but there are some really bad fake malaria pills out there so you have to be aware where they come from I, I don't want to offend any Chinese but China has been famous for making some China and India uh, really fall, bad 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 uh, bad. Fake drugs, unfortunately. So get your medications from a very reputable... We worked with the most reputable drug supplier in Kenya, and it was a Christian organization. We trusted that they got their drugs that were good. I don't want to say it, but you... Sometimes when it comes from different countries, you've got to... You have to be very careful, and I'm very aware of that because we were told that for a long time, so you have to be careful. Yep. Any other questions? The main thing is I just want you guys to get out. If you're going to be working in a context, we get so stuck as being the doctor that we forget. We have a community that needs a lot more than just our medication. We had the refugees come to our clinic in Dora where I ran a huge health program, 27,000 patient visits a year. They had multiple clinics that they passed up along the way that were free. We charged. It was like 50 cents. But we charged because uh, we were not uh, MSF, we were not IRC, IMC, all those things. And they said, we come to you because you care and your prayers are powerful. We saw so many people healed, miraculously healed, because of the prayers of our chaplains. And not only that, they were spiritually healed because we saw, I can't Thousands of Muslims come to Christ. So, praise God, and the church is growing, and you can be a part of this if you get out. I just want to encourage you, because there's so much a pull on us to, as practitioners to just be stuck in the clinic or the hospital, but make sure that you have time out in the community. Be involved in a local church and in the community in different aspects. All right? Okay, thank you so much. Have a blessed day. Yes, please. And if any of you ever want any of like, uh, these slides or anything like that, let me know, and I'll, I'll, I can uh, give you the download link for them that I have on my Google Drive. No, it's not. I work in a closed country, so I don't put... You have to come up and talk to me. Okay, so what I'll do, if you have a piece of paper and pen, I'll give you my email address. Or in your, there, yep.